everyone. Welcome to another podcast of Indigenous Roots and Hoots. I'm your host, Gordon Spence, and my guest today is Paul Kwasa. Paul Araluk Kwasa, E51231, is an Inuk. He was born in Manituk, a small traditional camp near the community of Iglulik, which is where he resides now. Paul lived the traditional life for the first years of his life in traditional Inuit camp. Paul then went on to attend residential school in Chesterfield Inlet shortly after, I guess, uh, he must have been about six, seven years old when he left. He's also attended Churchill Vocational Center, another residential school in Churchill, Manitoba. Later on in life, he uh, attended the Algonquin College in Ottawa. Paul has also worked with the Inuit Tapirisat of Canada in the Land Claims Department. He went on to work as the chief negotiator for Nunavut Tungavik, the land claims body that eventually helped create the territory of Nunavut. Paul was also a mayor in his hometown of Iglulik, chairman of Nunavut Land Use Planning Commission in the early 2000s, for six years and president of the Association of Nunavut Municipalities. He then went on to be elected to the newly created Nunavut Legislative Assembly representing his community of Igrulik. He was the Minister of Education for four years, and then he became the Premier. And then his last gig was the Speaker of the Legislative Assembly. Good afternoon, or should I say good morning, Paul. Nice to have you here. And uh, maybe we could start by talking about your community. Where are you from and how life was? Uh, what's your community is like? Igrulik, talk a little bit about that. Okay, well, thank you very much, Lord. It's a pleasure to be uh, talking with you again and finally seeing you. And uh, I wish the best for everyone who is watching. I was born back in 1952 and uh, was born with the name Arurak. And my second name was Kungatadlorito. Again, that's very traditional. Arulak was my uh, father's stepfather and I'm named after him. And Kungatel Lorito was my father's biological mother. So in the traditional way, it doesn't matter whether you are named after a woman or a man. And that's always been the case in our traditional way. And so I was born Arula Kungatel Lorito. And in those days, uh, interestingly, the reason why I gave you that E5 number is we were given disc numbers. And my disc number or dog tag, as, as we can refer to, was E51231. And I was probably the 1,231st child that was born as an Eskimo in those days. Because in those days, we didn't exercise the, uh, the family name kind of thing. We didn't have surnames, as the English uh, always carry on. You know, we didn't have surname until in, in the late 70s, uh, we started finally getting uh, surnames. And Hwasa is uh, my father chose Hwasa as our family name because that was his father's biological father's name, Kwasa. So we all became Kwasa. And then 
that disk number that I just mentioned evaporated kind of thing. Thank right. God. I grew up uh, in Manito, where my grandfather had camped and made it into our traditional camp. Our grandfather was there, all my uncles, some of my aunts were still there. So it was like a family camp, traditional camp, where we moved from one location to another. It depended on what season of the year it was. So Manito was our wintering uh, camp. And in the spring, we moved to another location. And it depended on what animals we were going to be hunting that year. So we would move from one camp to another. And then by the following winter, we'd go back to Manito because that was our winter camp. We had sod houses, you know, sod houses. But I was born in an igloo. And I think we, are, we were the last generations to experience that truly traditional way of life where we had great respect for our parents our grandparents. We had to do various tasks. Uh, it depended how old you were. The moment that you were able to participate in the, uh, in the hunting parties, we would go. And of course, living very traditionally, you know, we were always scared of kablunaks, uh, right. meaning non-Inuit, you know, kablunaks. Yeah. That's how we grew up. And uh, every time... Uh, you know, we heard about Palisi, uh, RCMPs. Oh, but they were the most scariest ones uh, yeah. because uh, your parents would say, "Don't do anything bad, or you're gonna—they're gonna be taken. You're gonna be taken away." You know, yeah. here are we are little kids, and we're very scared of them. Yeah. What type of animals did you hunt? Uh, in those days, uh, around our area, uh, depending on what season we hunted, we mo- mostly hunted seals. Uh, Walrus was another one that, that was hunted around that area. Narwhals, and of course, uh, various uh, migratory birds. Caribou? Uh, yeah, caribou and polar bears. Uh, oh. But polar bears were very rare. You had to go quite a distance for caribou. You know, it took about two weeks at a time to get caribou in those days. Because again, the only means of transportation was dog, dog teams. This was way before snowmobiles or any type of uh, machinery ever came up north. So all traveling was done by dog teams. And certainly my dad had his own dog team. And as children, we would have one dog at, that we could name. And my dog's name was Teacock. So every child had an opportunity to say, that's my dog. That was the tradition. I think most indigenous people as kids had a dog at some point in their, in their mm-hmm. early lives that you got to name and have one dog of your dog team. So you must remember uh, riding in a dog team, going hunting with your father. And tell us about that. Yeah, actually, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, uh, by that time, Igulik was about uh, maybe uh, 25, 30 miles north of uh, Igulik. And Igulik, in my time, around the early 50s, there was already a Hudson's Bay company in, uh, in Igulik and an RC Roman Catholic mission there. So there were only two kind of Kadlunas there. There was a missionary and an Hudson's Bay company. Those were already there. Apparently, I think in Igulik, 
the Roman Catholic Church had built their church around the late 1920s. And uh, Hudson's Bay Company came there shortly afterwards. So there was already a store there. So we would go from Manito by dog team to go to, to buy supplies to Igulit, which took us a, a whole day trip. Right now, with snowmobiles, that's only about two-hour drive. But with dog team, it usually took about a day. At times, we even had to overnight before we reached uh, Igulit. I guess it depended on how lazy or, or energetic your dogs were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whereabouts, like geographically, where is Iglulik? Your, your traditional campus, north of the community of Iglulik, where you live now. For our listeners, where would it be? Like, uh, describe where Iglulik would be on the map. Yeah, if you see the map, there's a big island called Baffin Island. It's right at the northern tip of Baffin Island. And if you look at the map, it's around Fox Basin. Right. There's Hudson's Bay, and then Fox Basin is just north of it. It's a little island. Igulik is just a little island. But where I was born, I was born north of it, which is more part of the mainland. Interestingly, which we call Canada. Okay. Uh, you know, <laughs> because uh, Igulik is a little island just off the mainland. Yeah. And even today, People who are going caribou hunting to the mainland say, I'm going caribou hunting to Canada. And uh, that's interesting because, yeah, you know, in those days, we never knew we were Canadians. We never thought of that. In those days, we never thought of there's other people living out there because our traditional cap only consisted of our relatives. We never saw anybody else. And in my young days, I always thought we were the only ones kind of thing living on Earth. Right. Yeah, it's very interesting because I'm reading this book called The Long Exile. It's about the Flaherty's who were relocated up to the high Arctic. And mm -hmm. the lady who writes the book mentions that there was a group of Inuit that lived like way up in the high Arctic. And apparently they thought the same thing, that they were the only human beings that lived on Earth. On, yep. on, Around them, there was. They didn't think that there were any other human beings that existed, which is pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. I think, anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. Maybe we can uh, just move on a little bit. I've always been fascinated by Inuit and your culture and and your people, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for Inuit and how they've been able to survive. And and not just that, but uh, you know, the, the the kind of people you are, it's just like always open and friendly and welcome, welcoming to to other people. When you were young, uh, you attended a residential school in in the Kivalik region, um, the community of mm -hmm. Chesterfield Inlet. What was that like? Like, how old were you when you went there, and what was the, your experience there like? Talk a little bit about your time in residential school. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, just thinking about it is, is at times very hard because at that time it was the priest and the RCMP that time that said our parents were told your your children have to go to school i mean they didn't have a choice uh, of course but they were told that if you want to collect family allowance yeah uh, yeah family allowance you have to send your child to school they had no choice and uh, you know a lot of us were taken forcefully because uh, nobody wants to give away a, a five or six years old child and send them off 
Right. That's, that's unorthodox in our culture, but uh, that's the process that we had to go through. I was six years old then. Prior to that, I, I went down south at the age of five because in those days there was TB era, tuberculosis, and I was sent down south uh, when I was probably like five, six. And then uh, right after I came back, they sent me out to uh, Chesterfield Inlet. In those days, planes were rare to see, but planes came in to pick us up in the fall. And it was a single otter, I remember. We were cramped inside. In those days, there were no seats on the plane. So we all had to sit on the floor. As a single otter, all of us heading down from Iglurit, we had to go through Repulse Bay or Nauya before reaching Chesterfield Inlet. And uh, as little kids, you know, little kids are, it's normal if you want to go to the washroom or pee, you know, and, and this plane didn't have any washrooms, nothing. So the pilot would just land on the lake, get us out, do our own stuff, and hop on the plane again, and off we, off we go again en route to uh, Chesterfield Inlet. <laughs> it's yes. kind of funny that, that way. You know, just right. landing anywhere yeah. for us to do our part. Yeah, <laughs> well, and, you know, at least he landed and allowed you guys to do your thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I think the pilots more were more humane than uh, yeah than the RCMP or the or, or the uh, missionaries. But uh, when you went to Chesterfield, what is the name of that school? Bernier, is it? Uh, uh, yeah, Sir Sir Bob? Joseph Bernier yes. School. Right. Yeah. And it was uh, one of uh, hundreds and hundreds of schools that were uh, residential schools that were established across Canada. And uh, that was run by the Roman Catholics, uh, I believe. Talk about your your daily life in uh, residential school at Chesterfield. Yeah, yes. Uh, uh, The residence was was called Turkatil Hall, named after a a bishop, Bishop Turkatil. And it's a three-story building residence, three-story building. On the third floor would be the girls. They would probably number about 40. On the second floor were the boys. And we also, there were about 40. So uh, all in all, there used to be about 80 students, 80 of us living in that residence, run by the Oblate Fathers. And uh, Chesterfield Inlet was a community that was formed in 1926. There they had built a hospital. It was also run by the nuns, gray nuns they were called. And then all our supervisors were gray nuns. And there were also brothers, I don't know what, brothers and and then there was the priests. So Chesterfield Inlet itself was more like a, a central location for the priests, for the nuns, for, you know, for that kind of thing. Uh, in the residential school, you know, like every every uh, every residential school, very disciplined. Uh, we were not allowed, you know, to speak our our Inuktitut language. We were not allowed to see our sisters, our siblings. Uh, it was very disciplinary type of residential school, like uh, probably most likely like any residential schools in those days. You know, you were punished. Uh, we're doing nothing, really. And uh, you went to church every morning at 7 o'clock. It was a very Roman Catholic institution. 
at yeah. three o'clock in the mm -hmm. afternoon and then another one at seven o'clock in the evening. So, you know, I'm surprised we're not holy these days. They were trying to make us really into holy people, I think, in a sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in fact, in fact, you know, as our toys in, in a resident school as boys, they even gave us little priest uh, uniforms. You know, oh. when, when you go to a mass, they, they put these cloaks and all these things. They even made us all those little miniature things for us to pretend that we were in a mass and conducting a mass. And, wow. and all the boys, if, if a lot of us wanted to become priests, you know, because of that. Thank God I never did. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, but it was very, it was very hard at times, especially uh, not being able to see your sisters. I had, I had two sisters going there and an older brother at the same time. Yeah. And we were not allowed to talk with our sisters or see them. Maybe on Saturday, we, we had an opportunity, but the rest of the week, no. What did they feed you? Porridge every morning. And only on Christmas Day did they feed us cereal. You know, wow. it, was a, it was a special treat. Yeah. But every morning, it was mostly porridge, hot porridge with biscuits. And the funny part was uh, because they knew we were Inuit, I guess, uh, they gave us uh, uh, frozen beef cut into a cube for us to eat. Beef? I think, yeah, beef, frozen beef. I think because they knew Inuit ate frozen food. Yes. That was crazy. Yeah. What we also did was uh, we did a lot of trapping. Once we were at a certain age in the winter, we do trapping, fox trapping. Wow. And we'd catch, we'd catch Arctic foxes. We learned how to clean them. And I don't know where the money went. We did a lot of trapping. All the boys who were able to go out, we used to do, you know, just by walking. Yeah, how old uh, were we you? We did a lot of trapping. I was like uh, maybe 11, 12, around that age. And yeah. we did a lot of trapping for the institution. Yeah. You know, I think they used that, you know, they sell them out. We never saw anything. Uh, we yeah. did a lot of things like that. We, we were, we also made fish nets. They taught us how to make fish nets. And I don't know where all those fishnets went after we finished them. Yeah. So yeah. we did we did a lot of these money making things which we never saw or or used. And yeah. it was all I think it all went to the to the residence school or the oblates. And yeah. And, uh, what about soapstone? Did they ever give you a soapstone to carve? No, 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 no. It no. was mainly uh, fox trapping, uh, fishnet making. Yeah, those were the two main things that, yeah. that they got us to do. Were you allowed and, to uh, have any contact with the Inuit of Chesterfield Inlet, the, like the community members? No, not really. No, 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 not, no real contact, even though we went to school with them. After school, they went their merry way, and then we had our own. So, in fact, it came to a point where, you know, we used to call them ICMAYOT which meant the ones who have homes to go to. And here we are stuck in residential school. And yeah. as kids, you know, we'd fight with each other. 
they teach us that uh, you're residential schools and we teach, oh, you got to, you know. It was, uh, <laughs> I think, even after I went back to Iglulica from, I, I, I went to resident school there for about eight years. In later years, uh, we started seeing non-missionaries, non-nuns. They yeah. started coming in the later years, mid-60s onwards. Yes. We started seeing Adluna. When the government like, started taking over, yeah. And that's when, uh, uh, yeah, and, and it was a it was change of, you know, in those days, I think uh, rock and roll was just being born. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> were you were you not allowed to go home for Christmas at all? Did no, you stay there the whole year? No, we, oh yeah, we stayed there year round. I mean, well, not year round, but we used to leave Iglulik, uh, let's say, beginning of September or end of August, yeah. and we'd be in Chesterfield until the following year in May. We'd go home in May. We stayed there year-round. We'd get back home by May, mid-May. And we'd be home from mid-May till September. That must have been so, a happy time. Well, it was. But because we were so grilled into a residential school living and the food and everything, I mean, it was kind of even strange going home, even though you wanted to go home. But right. it was kind of strange because we were different. We were speaking in Hadlun attitude, in English. And, and uh, it kind of separated that family bond. Right. You know, uh, because we were gone for so long, the rest of the year, we'd come back. And there seemed to be a, a gap between us and our parents. Yeah. And, and, and that broke, you know, I think that, I don't know if that was the whole purpose of missionaries uh, sending us to residence to school, but yeah. but the family tie really broke, you know, at that time, even at a young age, which is so uh, so non-Inuit uh, way of rearing children. Yeah. And it's, it's uh, <clears throat> you well, know. Well, that was the government policy is to try and change uh, indigenous people from their their indigenous ways to become Thank you know you. Uh, non non native people to to become part of the white society i guess i guess they kind of you know they were kind of succeeded in that way uh by sending you away and keeping you away from your traditional lifestyle i remember coming home once from residential school and uh and seeing uh the big change and i didn't really like what i saw when i came home I thought, you know, my grandparents were extremely poor and their living conditions were extremely poor condition. And I really felt bad. And um, and I think that's kind of a, what residential school did to a lot of kids, that they kind of, you know, uh, going home, they didn't, they didn't like what they saw. I totally agree. I mean, yeah, it, it broke the, the bond of a family and... Even your way of thinking changed. Of course, your language. In our tradition, nobody was ever poor if you were traditional. We never even thought of, wow, we're poor kind of thing. Even when we were living in our traditional accounts, you know, we, we may have been short of food, but that doesn't mean you're poor. It's because uh, the animals are, are 
unavailable. Yeah. When was the first time you ever experienced coming off like uh, your community and, you know, not really meeting any Kalunak white people? Uh, when would you say you started realizing that people were racist toward you? It certainly was not in your community. And I know from my experience, I didn't actually feel it. I didn't even know anything about racism until later on when we started mingling with white people in the South. Mm. Would you agree with yeah. that? Yes. If you recall, when in the in the mid-60s, when we started seeing real Kaduna rather than nuns or priests, uh, and then we had this Kaduna teacher who was so mean, using the yardstick to hit us, throwing stu uh, students you know, across the school room for, for making a mistake. And that's when I started realizing that these Kudlunaks, they think they are so such a higher power kind of people. And that's when I realized that they were looking down on us. That made me really feel bad. And I'm sure a lot of us did because you could see some of the Kudlunaks uh, that we're looking down on you rather than evenly. And uh, Inuit, our tradition is not like that. We don't look down on people. We just see them at an even level. Yeah. That's, how, that's how Inuit and all Aboriginal groups were. But I think it was in the mid-60s I started realizing that, you know, because in the olden days, Inuit seemed so meek in front of the Kadlunas. Whenever there was an RCMP or a Kadluna, oh, Kadluna Galo, the big white man, kind of, the big white man, Kadluna Galo. Yeah. We made, even the language itself made them sound big. Yeah. Even my parents used to say, you know, the big white man is going to be coming, like a scary individual. Uh, okay. You know, yeah, I'll say that. Thank God I, I learned the English. I know who they are, and uh, that's one way of getting even. Right. You've come a long way, Paul. Uh, I've known you for quite a number of years now. What are some of the most significant changes have you seen for Inuit over your lifetime since you left residential school or since you were a kid? What are some of the biggest changes that you've seen? Hey, first of all, Inuit are not afraid of Kudlunaus anymore. That's number one. That's like good. They used to be. Yeah. yeah. We're not scared of them anymore. Yeah. The other one, of course, is that uh, through the land claims process, I think uh, we finally are able to, to say that, you know, we, we can become self-reliant. We can become self-sufficient, you know, as we used to be. And I think I see that changing now. We wanted to retain the independence before Kaduna came. And now I believe we are finally getting to that point. I think in Nunavut, we've been very lucky to, to create our own government. 85% of our population are Inuit. And therefore, we have a legislature that consists of 99% of them are Inuit. 99% of them are cabinet ministers. 100% of the time, it's an Inuit premier. So I think that 
itself is is a major change. Uh, it's going into the, the right direction. And uh, Inuit traditional knowledge, language are, are vitally important to retain, which was never an issue in my young days, but now it is because as we are being encroached by this European style of running things, I think we are able to uh, to to run that now using our language, which is so vitally important. Inuktitut. I mean, language is so vitally important, and I've always pushed for that. You know, we still have unilingual Inuit out there. It's so vitally important. I think the land claims itself had made a big difference in making Inuit more proud of being who they are. In our young days, it seemed that the Khadranas made sure you were not proud of who you were. But now we can say we are. It is our hunters that are most important part of our society, our hunters. And they are the ones that started that whole process of, look, we're tired of being given so many laws. Up here, you know, Inuit finally started realizing that I can only eat a polar bear meat at a certain time of the year because of that Canadian law. I can only hunt narwhals at a certain time of the year. Where in my in our traditional way, animals didn't have a season. We could hunt them any time of the year, you know. But once once the Canadian law started being imposed on us, it was the hunters that started talking a little bit more. This was in the early 70s now. So I think that has changed a bit, changed, changed a lot. Uh, we now have our own Nunawood Wildlife Management Board, 99% of the members. Well, if more than half are, are members on the, are Inuit. And uh, I think these institutions that were created out of our land claims are helping out in retaining our self-independence. Right. In what ways are you most concerned about how fast climate change is affecting the Arctic and the Inuit way of life? Hmm. <laughs> you talked about the hunters, right? And uh, how the laws have impacted on them. I can imagine that, you know, climate change is affecting their abilities to harvest uh, animals. Mm, yeah, yes, yes. Uh, for example, this summer, we had a cold summer and Inuit started questioning. Did they say there's climate changes? Did they say there's global warming? Boy, it's been a lot colder, uh, cold summer we had this year. So interestingly, you know, you do question that at times because it's still very cold up here and scientists are saying, oh, there's global warming. And yet it's still bloody cold up here sometimes. But I think the animals are, are moving around a lot more. We see in my hometown in Niglulik, we used to get narwhals. Now they're gone. We cannot hunt them anymore because they're gone. They're moved out someplace. Again, it is because of the climate change. Animals are moving around a lot more. Where there used to be abundance, they're moving on. We're seeing a lot more of a non-traditional type of animals coming up here. Bugs, even as, you know, bugs, uh, different types of birds are coming up. So it's yeah. changing. 
it's changing our diet, I think. And, and certainly uh, the ice forming is very, very different. Springtime is more dangerous than it used to be. We have to be a lot more careful. Even the elders are saying, you know, in the olden days, they would be able to predict the weather just by looking at the sky or the snow, and then they knew how to forecast. But now the elders are saying, because the north wind has changed, it's more to the west. The sun it has changed from its uh, rising and, and setting. It has changed. The wind has changed. The wind used to be from the north, but now right. it's more the west. And certainly that has affected uh, the ice formation uh, and so forth. So elders are even saying they cannot predict the weather anymore because it has drastically changed. How do you feel when scientists and other historians say Inuit came from Asia by the way of the Bering Strait? Agree or disagree? <laughs> In my mind, I disagree uh, because, you know, my theory is that I think Inuit are more descendants of the Japanese because if you look at that, northern tip of Japan, they have an indigenous uh, group called Aino. Wow. And interestingly, their language is very, very similar to Inuit. Really? Uh, yeah, interestingly. And I've always thought that maybe Inuit are more descendants of uh, Japanese. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe Japanese came from Mongolia, but that's my theory. But to a certain extent, I, I would sort of believe that, yes, we did, because there's Inuit in northern Siberia that have the same language, but different dialect from northern Siberia, Alaska, Canada, and Greenland. There's four countries that have Inuit. So the theory of us coming from through the Bering Strait just make sense to a certain point because uh, the leftovers are still there in uh, northern Siberia. Uh, the base, the base words are always the same. For example, polar bear is nano, for seal is natja, for walrus it's ivo. And you hear that word all the way from northern Siberia across to Greenland, and that's how we are. That's interesting. Yeah. It's fascinating, actually, uh, that there are Inuit in. Uh, well, I know I, I've I've known this for quite some time that the Inuit are mm. from uh, Greenland and, and Alaska, I guess Siberia and Canada. Yeah, yes. the all the yeah. circumpolar region, and you've been around for thousands and thousands of years. My last question has to do with. Reconciliation, as you know, that uh, you know, it's been a buzzword in Canada for the last few years, and uh, I think Canadians are going to continue to struggle with this for some time yet. It's not an easy answer. There's no easy solution, and I think it's up to every Canadian to make at least an effort and think about how we can best best make this country better for everybody. Um, how do you feel about this whole question about reconciliation and? What do Canadians need to do to make Canada a better country to live in for, for all, all Canadians? Yeah, I believe that, you know, when, when we hear the word reconciliation, 
it only kind of refers to Aboriginal group, our Aboriginal people, our Indigenous people in, in Canada. Now, that's the only ones that we reconciliate. I believe that even non-Inuit have to follow that process. It has to work both ways. It cannot just go from one here to the other. It, it has to work, work both ways. Reconciliation means, you know, it's not just from one end to the other only, and it, like this. It has to work both ways. It has to work both ways. That's the only way reconciliation will work. With both, yeah. both, both sides does it evenly. I think Canadians have to realize that this is the truth. And that's why it was called truth and reconciliation. One yeah. has to find truth. Yeah. They have to believe in that truth yeah. and not just, ah, maybe they did that. No, it's the truth. And they have to believe. I think non-Inuit have to put that truth in there first before any anything can be reconciled. You know, before that happens, it seems to be one, one, uh, one route one, one only. Way. Yeah. One yeah. way only. Yeah. It has to be both ways. I agree. If, if yeah. it's going to work. Yeah. I think mm -hmm. every Canadian, Indigenous or not, uh, mm -hmm. no matter where you come from, you know, have to make an effort to understand each other mm -hmm. and to make an effort to to know the history and uh and only then the truth you know we can uh move forward and like i say the truth will set you free and we can only then mm -hmm. move on you know as a as a, as a country mm -hmm. yes yes continue to heal and become a good country for yeah. everybody the last part of the podcast well i don't know if you know this but our podcast is called Roots and Hoots, and uh, Hoots is about telling something, a funny story uh, or a joke. Uh, you know, Indigenous people like to be uh, humorous. Maybe it's part of, of making us more resilient and adapting and, you know, and uh, being able to cope with the difficulties we've, we've gone through in our history. Um, I wondered, Paul, if you have something funny to tell us, a funny joke or a funny incident that's happened in your life. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, a lot. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll tell you, during the negotiations, we took advantage of uh, those kadunas uh, at one time. When we were negotiating our land selections, uh, we got the federal government negotiators to come to our each and individual communities, all 25 communities. And we made sure that we did it during the springtime because during the springtime, as you know, in the majority of our communities, the 24-hour daylight. And we're used to that. 24-hour daylight, you can hunt during the day, the night, doesn't matter, it's daylight. And uh, we made sure we did that land selections during the springtime because we knew they were going to go to our communities. They, the feds didn't really have a clue, I don't think, uh, what, what the difference was. But we, we, we started negotiating during the morning and all day and then all night and then the next morning and tried to get the feds to get tired, you know, because we were, we're, we're used to staying up all night long uh, in the springtime. And that's how we got some of our... Uh, better lands then because we got them so bloody tired <laughs> we, we kept on going going oh yeah we took that advantage <laughs> so 
Yeah, we, we used to try and take uh, advantages of what we know. And then right. when we were selecting uh, parcels of lands, uh, the government said, oh, we need access across. Okay. So we went back to the elders and say, okay, where's the where's access location that you can find? Okay. All the boulders go through here. It's a valley full of boulders. Okay, we'll take that. Go back to the table and say, okay, here's your access. The federal government, not knowing it, said, okay, thank you. You know, and we gave them the worst access route <laughs> that we could think of yeah. because we knew they they didn't have a clue what it looked like or they never went there. Yeah. And that's how we, uh, we, we did a lot of our negotiations using our knowledge. And <laughs> Judicial knowledge, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much, Paul. Uh, I've been talking to Paul Arulak Kwasa. Uh, it's, this number is E51231. Paul is a leader. Uh, he's formerly a speaker of the Legislative Assembly and uh, grandfather, father, and a survivor of residential schools. And I want to take the time on behalf of the Legacy of Hope Foundation to thank Paul for coming on our show and uh, doing this podcast with us. I know you're a busy guy, Paul, but thank you very much for taking this time. Gordon. Thank you, and good to see you. Yes, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Have a good day. Bye. Okay. Good job. Roots and Hoots is produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. For more podcasts like this, please visit our website at legacyofhope.ca.